we've just spent a bit of time singing and worshiping God. And one of the, one of the phrases that, um, that I often sing, probably not in the words, but I just make them up myself, but is the phrase, I am yours. And I say this to God a lot, I am yours. And that's kind of the framework that I want us to be thinking from this morning. What does it mean that I am yours? So Psalm 138 is where we're going to start today. At the beginning of Psalm 138, it says, Lord, I will praise you with all my heart in front of those who think they are gods. I will sing praise to you. I will bow down facing your holy temple. I will praise your name because you are loving and faithful. So this psalm is saying that because God is loving and faithful, as a result, I will partake in three actions. I will sing, I will bow, and I will praise. But the interesting thing about this little um, bit of that psalm, I think, is that the beginning part, which says, in front of those who think they are gods, I will do these things. I will acknowledge you as God in front of these other things who think they are God. They are God's. And at the time of writing, we can assume David wrote this. Well, we don't assume David wrote this. We know David wrote this. We assume he means the other gods of the time. So um, Baal and other gods, I don't know what their names are. Um, But I've, over the past couple of years, increasingly been thinking, what does that look like in my life? I don't, we don't have that as a culture of, of really obvious different gods, although there obviously are other religions. But actually, what does it look like in our lives? What are the gods that we can say, I'm not going to bow to you, I'm going to bow to, to this God? So I'm going to challenge you this morning to ask, what does that look like in your life? Who are you singing to? Who are you bowing to? And who are you praising? So as a continuation to our, our mini-series, is called Jesus is Lord, So What? Jane, Andy, and Andy, that's a funny sentence, Andy and Andy, <laughs> um, they've all given us some amazing offerings of what their thoughts are on this subject. And if you haven't listened to them, even if you were here, I, said, I would thoroughly recommend going back and listening to them because... This stuff is really vital, and, and in order to get this right, it requires intentionality. That's one of my favorite words, intentionality. It doesn't happen by accident. They've talked a lot over the last few, however many weeks, about why we need to throne Jesus as Lord of our lives. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit more practically this morning about how we make Jesus Lord of our lives. What does it look like? Um, and the distinction that I think all three of them mentioned about um, from Jesus being our saviour and Jesus being our Lord and how um, how they're different. So we're going to look a little bit this morning about the word, um, at the word Lord and what it means. And then we're going to look at some real world examples of what might happen when Jesus is Lord. So let's start off with this word Lord. What is a Lord? What does it mean to make something Lord? I wonder if anybody can think of any lords in popular culture that might help us to understand this word a little better. I'll start the ball rolling. And my favorite lord that I know is Lord Grantham. Anyone else know, can think of any other lords that we might have seen on our screens or in our books? Who? Alan Sugar. Yes, he's a lord. Good one. I literally came up with two on my list. So, <laughs> so we've got Lord Grantham, Lord Sugar, Lord Kerr. Lord Kerr. Don't know who that is, <laughs> but good, yeah. Lord Voldemort, he's on my list. <laughs> the other one I've got is Lord of the Rings. Lord Farquhar, good one. <laughs> Any other lords we can think of? Did you say Pinocchio? Oh, the Lord Mayor, yes, that's a good one, the Lord Mayor. <laughs> I don't know, it just sounded like she said Pinocchio. <laughs> I don't think he's a lord, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> but I just think, spending a little bit of time thinking about how we use that word and what that word means in, in the world can help, help our understanding of it and help our application of it. 
Um, so the word Lord, according to the Oxford Dictionary of English, the etymology of it comes from a word, and sorry for my pronunciation, but it's an old English word called that says Hlafford, which probably I'm saying wrong. Um, you can Google it. Um, but basically, it meant, it meant breadkeeper, or more literally, it means loaf ward. And it came out of, <laughs> Sam found that funny, thanks sir, loaf ward. It was a reflection on the, the tribal customs um, of, of ancient England, um, it, of the chieftain providing food for his followers. So the Lord would provide food for their followers, which I think is really interesting in that we we believe that, that the Lord is our provider and that he provides for us. So I think it's quite cool, the origins of that word. But obviously that's English and that's where we get it from in English. Um, what about the biblical word? In our modern translations of the Bible, the word Lord is used in, in place of quite a few different Greek and Hebrew words. Um, the most notable is God's name in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, the word, the, the name Yahweh is often translated as Lord. Quite often in our translations, it's in capital letters. So you know that it means Yahweh, the Lord. Um, in the New Testament, in Greek, um, the root word of, of the word Lord comes from um, Kuru, kurus, I do apologise for my pronunciation. Um, kurus indicates supremacy, um, supreme in authority, or a controller. Um, and the, the verses, I don't know if you found them really challenging, but I found them super challenging. From Matthew 7, 21 to 23, that Jane talked about however many weeks ago, um, where Jesus is saying, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, is known by me. Uh, the word that's used there is kurius, which is close to kurus, but it's kurius. Um, and that word is actually used 722 times in the Bible. And it translates to mean Lord, Master, Sir. And it indicates absolute ownership rights. Absolute ownership rights. So does God have absolute ownership rights over your life? Or are there bits of our lives that we are choosing to keep for ourselves? And what does that even mean? Like it, it can sound quite um, theoretical. And, and um, actually, what does it look like in, in real life? We sing a song in God's Kids that says, You are God and I am not, so take your place above my life. With everything and all I am, I'm holding on to your plan. My life is not my own, so come and take control, because you alone are good. And if we know that God is good, if we can trust that God is good, then we can trust him with our life. And But saying that line, my life is not my own, come and take control, that's huge. That's massive. Imagine not having control of your life. I wonder if that's a song that you could sing. I wonder if that's something that you could say is true about your life. Like I feel like I could say about it about at certain times, um, in certain areas, but, but I, can I say that about every part of my life? Come and take control, Lord. My life doesn't belong to me. So there, there was a very famous, um, or I've put the word noted because I've not heard of her before, um, famous Christian missionary in the, on the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries called Amy Carmichael. You might have heard of her. You might be a bit more, lots of nods. I feel very uneducated. Uh, but she was a, a missionary in India for 55 years on the, in the turn of the century. She um, opened an orphanage. She founded a mission. She wrote loads of books. And she wrote a book called A Very Present Help. And she talks, I think, about the practicality of what it means to make Jesus Lord. She says this, 
The best training is to learn to accept everything as it comes, as from him whom our soul loves. The tests are always unexpected things, not great things that can be written up, but the common little rubs of life, silly little nothings, things that you are ashamed of minding one scrap. Jill Weber summarises that quote by saying this quote. <laughs> Amy's life, it seems to be characterised by big yeses. We remember her for the big things. Yes to a life of singleness. Yes to leaving her homeland and family and serving in a culture completely different to her own. Yes to the risky work of rescuing the vulnerable from sexual slavery. But in this quote, she emphasises not the big yeses, but the small ones, the common little rubs of life, the silly little nothings. The decisions in the seemingly small and mundane, they are the yeses that matter. And I can, I can totally attest to that in the, the testimony of my life. And someone shared with me this story a few years ago, and it's recently been doing the rounds on social media again this week, I've seen, which is funny timing, thanks God. Um, but So the story is of um, a teacup. So I'm holding my teacup, and I'm just walking along, drinking my tea, holding my teacup. And um, Julian comes along and he bashes into me and I, I spilt my tea all over the floor and um, I'm really upset and there's a big mess and oh my goodness, there's tea everywhere. Um, why is there tea on the floor? And I can say, well, Julian bumped into me. He wasted my tea. He spilt it. But the truth is, there's tea on the floor because there was tea in my cup. When things happen to us, we can blame the thing that's happened for our response or we can, we can take responsibility for our response. So when, when life kicks me down, what comes out? Is it selfishness and uh, bitterness or is it love and peace and joy? Is my cup filled with pride and anger? So one of the things that um, I think I said already, but that Jane, Andy and Andy all said was about the distinction between making Jesus saviour and making Jesus Lord. So for me in my life, I made Jesus saviour a long time ago. I was 13 years old. I prayed to him. I asked him to, to save me. And, and I believe that he did. I got baptised. It was all lovely. But it wasn't until um, I found myself in a very vulnerable position about three, four or five years ago. And I literally said to God, I made a deal with him. If you make this okay... I'll, live, I'll start living for you. I'll make my life for you. Um, if I'm still alive tomorrow morning, my life will, will now belong to you. And obviously God held up his hat, his end of that deal. And, um, and I've spent the rest of my, my time since then trying to work out what does that mean? That promise that I made to God that you can have my life. What does that mean? And I think on a very practical level, it means spending time with him every day. It means being honest with him. And it means being honest with other people about how I feel it means putting him first in my finances, my diary, my thoughts. And that's not something that's easy, and it's not something that happens overnight without that intentionality. One thing that I've always felt really challenged by is the idea of where does your comfort come from? You know when you have a really rubbish day or um, just, just in normal life, not something terrible, but just have a rubbish day and you go home, what do you do? You put on your pyjamas, you watch a movie that you love, you chat to your whoever you live with. Um, you open a bottle of wine or you, you watch a certain TV show. We all have our, our comfort. What's your, our little comfort blankets? And, um, 
And these can be healthy, they can be unhealthy. That's not a a judgment on that. I think we need those things, and I think they're good. But somebody challenged me, um, because they told me that their comfort was found in Scripture. And I thought, well, I'd much rather open open a bottle of wine and watch a funny film. And I was really challenged by that. And a couple of years ago... Um, I started reading one psalm as soon as I woke up, read a psalm, just before I go to bed, read a psalm. And it just became a bit of a, a life habit. And um, and it, it's just like Amy Carmichael was talking about, those small decisions that seem mundane and small and and don't seem to matter that, might, that, that much, actually. When things change and big things happen, it's what we've put in place up until that point that that affects what we do. So all of that to say, most of you probably know by now, I had my heart broken two weeks ago and it was awful and I'm, I'm still struggling with it and I, I'm going to be vulnerable about it with you this morning because it's very easy to talk about things once we're over it and, and the, the sun's shining and we're happy again. But to talk about it when we're still in, in that, I think that's really powerful. But um, just to share with you that when, when that happened, it, it was not done in, in a way that honoured me or honoured the relationship that we were in. And... Um, But the first thing I did was I went to my comfort place, which was the Psalms. I found the most dramatic ones I could find, and I read them out loud really passionately and cried out to God, like, God, my heart is broken. But the only reason that I was able to go straight to God in that moment was because small, consistent decisions had led me there for the previous three or four years. So when my cup was knocked over two weeks ago, it was scripture that poured out. It was God who I went to for comfort. And, it, and I can honestly say he had absolute ownership rights in that moment, absolute ownership rights of every area. I was broken on my knees in front of him. And yet I knew it was well with my soul because I knew who, I know who holds my soul. I, know that Je- I knew that Jesus was still Lord. And I think that's, this is the key for all of us as we seek to make Jesus Lord of our lives. He just wants to be part of our lives, of every moment, in the mundanity, I never know how to say that word, mundanity, whatever, in the mundane stuff, in the everyday bits, are we constantly and consistently asking the question, Lord, am I bowing to my Lord right now? Am I bowing to you right now? One of the things I think that we don't do enough of as believers is, is talk about the incarnation talk about who jesus is i think if we i think we're brilliant at it at christmas i think we do a really good job of of it at christmas and then we kind of trail it off and um we end up anyway if if we lived with that thought at the center of our minds of every moment of every day the the knowledge that that the deity immense amazing creator of the universe became a person, a baby that pooped, that drank milk from his mum's boob, that, that had to learn to walk, that fell down in the dirt. The deity that created the universe did that so that we could understand him. He gave up everything. He lived for 30 years in unknown obscurity. Like I, I find that really um, challenging or comforting at the same time, that, that Jesus... Nobody knew who he was for 30 years. And a lot of, um, we'll talk about that in a minute, but nobody knew who he was for 30 years. And then suddenly he was propelled into this, into this ministry where everybody knew him and, and the world was changed by him. And he ended up giving up everything for us. Imagine if that was at the forefront of your mind 
every day, all day, every day. You know how busy we get and we, we forget sometimes and um, we can put little things in place to be like, remember, I have a, like a bracelet that I wear sometimes that, that just reminds me, oh yeah, like, remember about God. <laughs> um, Jane brought us a quote from, um, from Kathy Madavan and it was something along the lines of, if you want to know if Jesus is Lord of your life, um, take a look at your bank statement and take a look at your diary. And um, I find that challenging. Is Jesus Lord of your finances? Um, me and Claire were chatting earlier about um, about tax bills, and I've been hit with a hefty tax bill this this year that was totally unexpected, and I can't afford to pay it. Um, is is the Lord? Is Jesus still Lord of my finances? When they look like in the earthly, there there's what's the word? It looks impossible. Do we trust Him as Lord of our money? That's massive. Are we generously giving despite what the natural looks like? Is Jesus Lord of our time? That was the other thing she said. Is Jesus Lord of our time? What does your diary look like? Is it full of doing? When is the time that you are being? Revelation 2 verses 2 to 5 says this. I know what you're doing. You work long and hard. I know you can't put up with those that are evil. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've found out that they're liars. You've been faithful and you've put up with a lot of trouble because of me. You've not given up. That's all really good stuff. He's saying, you know, you've worked really hard. I appreciate what you've done. You've done really well. It then goes on to say this. But here is something I hold against you. You don't have as much love as you had at first. Remember how far you've fallen. Turn away from your sins. Do the things you did at first. If you don't, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's a that's a harsh warning. Revelation's full of things like that. I love it. But God is saying, I've seen how you have how you have done all the stuff. And we can do all the practical things to remember Jesus. We can we can remember how He's asked us to live, we can practice our spiritual gifts. But first and foremost, Jesus wants to be Lord of our hearts. He wants He wants to woo you. He wants to capture you with his beauty. He wants to capture you with his majesty. Do you remember that first wild passion excitement of the moment you realized who Jesus was, what he'd done for you, how loved you are by God? That raw passion. When we were in Basildon Library a couple of weeks ago, Phil and I met this guy who was so raw and passionate. He came in with this booming voice and he was telling us, Jesus has done this, Holy Spirit's doing this. And he didn't care we were in the middle of a public library. And I, like, we were a bit like, whoa, who is this guy? And actually that raw passion of my life was a mess and Jesus has done this. And now I want to help people that are where I was. And I, th- I want to be like that. I want that passion. But I think that it comes from that from that hidden place. It comes from that place of, of spending time every day with God. Um, we're just going to turn to, if I can find my Bible app, um, Acts. Yes, Acts 16. So in Acts 16, we're going to start from verse uh, verse 16 as well and, um, and just go through this a little bit. So Paul and Silas are two of, of Jesus' followers. And one thing to say... Um, actually, I'll say that in a minute. So, um, so if you want to read along with me, I'm starting at number 16. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and bought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. 
But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when our owners saw that their hopes of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They're Jews and they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they'd given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. I'm going to pause there for a minute just to kind of reflect on what we've just read. So Paul and Silas, have they've been proclaiming Jesus. They've been, been sharing the gospel, doing what God's asked them to do. Um, as the Father sent me, so I send you. They're doing all that stuff. And, um, and what they've just done is actually incredible. This, this woman, this um, girl, we don't know anything about her slave girl, it says. So we can assume probably not very old, um, has has had a, a spirit of divination in them. So she was she was um, mystic, I guess. She was probably prophetic, you know, used in the right way. That would have been an amazing gift. But um, she's got this spirit in her. And um, and she's used by the people to, to make money for them. She's basically being pimped out by these guys or people who have seen her as a money-making machine. She's in a, not in a great place at all. She's probably not treated very well, I would imagine, as a slave. And um, she, or the spirit in her, is proclaiming who God is, following, following Paul and following Silas and saying um, that there's a way of salvation through these, through these men. And I, think it's fun, I do think it's funny that it says she kept doing this for many days and then Paul finally gets annoyed. And I think, I wonder, I wonder how many days, I wonder how patient he, he was. So he gets annoyed and, and he says, oh, for, for goodness sake, just leave her alone. This poor woman, spirit, get out of her. And, and out, out the spirit came that very hour. But then actually, what's, what's made her free has, has bigger consequences because she's, yes, she's free of that spirit, but she's still got her captors. She's still got her masters. She's still a slave. And suddenly, their way of pimping her out has gone. She, they can't use that anymore because she's not got that spirit of divination in her anymore. So they're, their moneymaker has, has been wrecked. So they use that as an excuse to take Paul and Silas um, in front of the officials. And then I think it, we can really easily gloss over these, um, these parts of scripture where um, they, put, they brought them before the magistrates. So they're in the, in the law place in the middle of the city and the crowd are saying, oh no, the people that owned the, the woman were saying, they've disturbed our city. And it says the crowd joined in attacking them. So you could just set the scene and imagine how big was the crowd. I'm guessing it wasn't four or five people. It would have been a whole bunch of people. So Paul and Silas are, are being jeered at, being attacked. We don't know if that's verbally or physically. And then it says they had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. So they're stripped naked. They're being beaten. They're bloodied. They're, they are... You, you can't get lower than this. Like, I've never been in that position and I can't, I don't think any of us have ever and hopefully will ever find ourselves in that position. They are the, the, at the bottom. That is rocks. That is rock bottom. So once they had given them a severe flogging, verse 23, 
They threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the innermost cell would have had no windows. It would be cold, dirty, dingy, and fastened their feet into the stocks. I think the the Romans were really, really good at torture. They were they'd really good at it. So Paul and Silas have been beaten and bloodied within an inch of their lives, probably, and then they're put in these stocks, which were designed to be uncomfortable. They wouldn't have been sitting there nicely with their feet in stocks like we imagine. It would have been they would have been slightly too high. They wouldn't have been able to lay down. They wouldn't have been able to rest. They were designed to be a torture implement implement of torture i think that's the right way of saying it so what do paul and silas do verse 25 paul and silas were praying and singing hymns to god can you can you just imagine that you know i have one tiny little inconvenience like a tax bill that's a bit too big and i think god are you like where's my faith these guys were beaten within an inch of their life and they were praying and singing hymns to god and the rest of this story is incredible. I, I encourage you to, to read it when you get home. We won't go through it all today. But in that moment, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. And I want to suggest that that wasn't, that wasn't the first time that they were singing and, and praying and singing hymns to God. Paul and Silas would have done that for years. I think, I, I don't know the exact numerical time for Paul, but he had his experience of, of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then there was a period of time before he started his ministry. So he spent that time, however many years it was, it wasn't days, it was years, seeking God in that secret place. So as soon as he got up, he would have, I imagine, he would have, he would have prayed, he would have turned to scripture. Just before he went to bed, he'd have done the same thing. He was practicing in the choir, in that moment, the incarnation and uh, celebrating the incarnation of who Jesus was. And I think from the response of, um, well, well, God moved massively in that, in that prison that day. But I wonder what would have happened if he didn't. I wonder if Paul and Silas would still have been singing the next day. I, I think they would have. And I think there's many other stories in the Bible that we can see. Um, and we can read where people have, have put God first. And I think it's so easy for us to, to want that big story, to want that big yes, to want that amazing miracle from God. But I think God works more powerfully in those little moments, in those tiny moments when you choose in the everydayness of this mundane thing I'm doing, God, I choose to make you Lord of this. God, I choose you. I bow to you in this moment. And to, to me, that I love that phrase, I bow to you. And I, try, I think about it in not so much a... It's so easy on a Sunday morning to sing and to bow and to literally get on our knees and bow to God. But what does that look like when, I'm, when you're faced with a, a decision where you could be nice or not to somebody, where you could go out of your way to help somebody or you could choose not to and I always think a really good example of this that I find massively challenging is in driving how easy is it to not let that person out because you've got to get to where you're going how easy is it to drive up really close behind someone because they're going so slow I do that all the time but I'm trying not to and I say to God now when 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 I'm driving along I see somebody indicating to go out I'm going to choose to let them out and if they go slow I'm not going to hold that against them and I'm going to pray for them and bless them and I say and I, I do get really frustrated with driving and I literally say to God I refuse to partner with this frustration help me help me feel peace 
And those small moments of secret place time that's just me and God is what is what means that, that later in life, when, if I was ever faced with what Paul and Silas were faced with, I hope, I hope I would be able to praise God in that moment. I don't know. I don't know if I could at this moment, but I want to get to a place where I can. And I'm, I'm assuming by the nods around the room that you guys are in that, on that same page as well. So I want to create a bit of space now. Um, and I don't think that this is a guilt thing. I don't think we need to be somber about it. Um, I think God is incredible. And I think Jesus is worth celebrating. And, um, and I'm, I, we're going li- to play that. I'm going to play that song that I quoted from earlier that we do in God's Kids. And I'm not going to ask you to do the actions, although if you want to, please do feel free. Uh, but it's, um, you are God and I am not. Can we say that? And if you, if you can say that, if you want to say that, brilliant. Sing along, just look at the words, whatever you want to do. Have a dance, I don't mind. Uh, if you if you feel like you can't, like, be honest about this. Don't sing the words if you don't mean them. But ask God, what does that mean for me? What does it look like for me? How can I, how do you and I, because this is between you and God. It's not between you and me. It's not between, oh, although it is important that we do this together. God, how do I, how do I make you Lord of my life? So we're going to listen to that song. Um, and then we've probably got about 10 minutes after that to to talk about it get together with the person next to you and and tell them what is challenging about that what is easy about that do you even care it's okay if you don't but i I hope that you do so we're going to be vulnerable with each other now and i want you to get into little groups twos, threes, fours, fives, whatever. Everybody looks horrified. Please don't. And I want you to, to think about that, that line. My life is not my own, so come and take control. How does that make you feel? What do you think about it? Go. And then I'm going I'm to bring us together in about 10 minutes' time um, to pray and release us to have tea. Sounds like you're all having some great chats. Please continue um, into our tea break, but I'm going to draw our meeting officially to a close with the words of Psalm 138. Lord, I will praise you with all my heart in front of those who think they are gods. I will sing praise to you. I will bow down facing your holy temple. I will praise your name because you are loving and faithful. God, we want to make you Lord of our lives. God, we, we lay our lives down in front of you and say, have your way with us, Lord. Absolute ownership rights. Lord, we want to get to a place where, we, where you, we can say you have absolute ownership rights over our lives. But Lord, we can't do that without your help. So we lay ourselves at your feet, at the foot of your cross, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, and have your way. Please feel free to pray for each other in your groups um, or go and get a cup of tea if you'd rather do that. Um, Be blessed and we'll see you next week.